more important things to be done during that speech time. Both the speech to EC time where you could be back flowing or that. I actually feel like we started off a little too soon there because I feel like if what our kids are saying is true, then no one in their lives even really knows what back flowing is because it's not being taught anymore. Yeah, I think we've uh, I think we've we've taken for granted that everyone listening knows what back flowing yeah, is. Back flowing could be a you know new concept. So maybe you should break down Scott what back flowing is for the kids. Well, basically, if the 2AC is speaking, the 1AC should not only flow for themselves, but also create a wait, whoa, duplicate whoa, flow. Wait, whoa, whoa, back up there. Yes. So the 1A should be flowing the 2AC. I thought they're getting the 2AC ready for the 2AC. While the no, should they, they be prepping the counterplan? They shouldn't be prepping the 2AC. They also shouldn't be following along in the 2AC speech document. They should actually be writing down what the 2AC says. But then when are they going to read all the other team's cards? All right, I think we get the point. Okay. But, uh, you two don't think people are flowing enough. But so the 2AC is talking, the 1AC needs to flow not only for themselves, but also create a backup or backflow uh, that they will then give to the 2AC so that the 2AC has a list of the arguments they made. So that's, so that's the backflow. That's what backflowing is. So for those of you all who haven't been doing it, the 2N is stuck backflowing the 2A, presumably if you both use different speaker positions, so the 1A will flow the 2AC, and then we'll create a duplicate of that. Now, some people who get really good at it, so people who did the 2N for a long time, like Scott and my college debate partner when I was a senior, were able to create that backflow while the 2AC itself was going on. If you cannot do that, that is probably a sign that your flowing and your writing down skills need to be improved. So a goal should be, if you do not, if you backflow now, see how good you can be at backflowing so that you can get both of them done. But if not, you have this convenient little three-minute period of time in which your partner is getting asked questions to write down that stuff. So when the 2A sits down, the 2AC can have a flow of what's going on in the 2AC speech itself. Now this is important, and why this another reason why the 2A needs to have this done for them is that let's say you're debating a team where the 2NC stands up and gives a stand-up 2NC. If the 2AC does not have a backflow, or if it is the 2AC's burden to create their own backflow using their speech document, they will be unable 
to have done that in that period of time because you have a stand-up chewing seat. I actually remember to this day uh, at the Harvard tournament when I was a sophomore in high school, I was watching Asher Haig from Green Hill debate uh, Casey Wolmer and Amy Broder in the Elims, and he realized that there wasn't a backflow going on or something like that, and Casey had made a, or whoever was the 2A, had made a bunch of arguments in the 2AC, and he, this is obviously a bad trick that's now going to be used all the time, he immediately stood up after the cross-ex and said he was ready, and because he knew that they weren't fully backflowed, they had to take prep in order to backflow the 2AC, but it was so important to them to have a flow of the 2AC that they were willing to take prep time to do that. Now, obviously, I don't recommend that you do that, but it is an example of a way in which the backflow is important to have. And it's important because it seems as if you don't have a backflow, then the 2AC has no idea what they said, and the 1AR is not perfect, so they need to have a good flow so they can do that, so they don't just write down what the 2AC said. And that's, of course, presuming that the 2AC is flowing the negative block, which is probably not happening either. But at least you should know what you've had there. It's a check against your partner making a mistake. And that was my phone ringing. So, moving on. So, so the, your kids weren't doing this as how this came up? Or what was their defense? Well, the defense, the first defense was that a look of shock that they didn't really know what we were talking about slash thought that we were crazy, which maybe is true, but on this issue, I don't think we are. The second defense was that the, they said the 2A probably doesn't flow the block or much of the block anyway, which was, for me, even more of a concern, um, at least if, if I thought that they weren't backflowing, but they were shadow flowing, uh, at least then the 2A was still paying attention to the block, but instead of flowing the neg block, the 2A would just read the speech document of the other team during the negative block, and they thought that that was uh, the way that it should be done, uh, which was interesting. Um, if you were the 2A, why might you want to flow the negative block? That seems like a, such a preposterous question. I guess, like, first, you got to make sure that your partner uh, isn't dropping anything. So if you don't have a flow, you don't know, like, where they said severs a VI or, you know, any kind of important arguments. And you know, it seems know. like two flows gives you two chances to get it to not drop something. Yeah, but also, like, the 2AC is the captain of the aft ship should be kind of involved in telling the 1AR what arguments they want to extend and focus on. And so if you don't know what the negative said in response to that, it's kind of difficult to plan your strategy. And maybe that assumes some people are thinking strategically. Making a lot of assumptions tonight. Um, the other thing that I think is important is if the 2AC uh, flows the negative block, the 2A can give input into what they think the negative's best option is. Uh, for the 2NR so that during 1AR prep they can give advice or at least give uh, some feedback to the 1A about what arguments they should spend more time on, what the order of the 1AR speech should be. Both of those things are things we're I feel, we're I feel like about. we're giving this way too much goddamn credit. At the end of the day, the 1A, you're not doing anything that is so much more important than writing down what was said in the previous speech for your partner. If you can come up with a coherent thing that you're doing during this 2AC, or doing that three-minute cross-ex time that does not involve picking your nose, or drinking something, or eating a snack, or doing something else, and that is much more important 
then backflowing the 2AC, then I will ne- I will prove you not backflowing the 2AC. But until I hear a coherent response as to why that's not true, just do it. And if you ask us why, it's because we said so. There are some things that are good and true. And if you aren't learning about this at debate camp, then I don't know who's teaching you about debate, but I know that it's a staple of any, in any lab I've been a part of that's like, write down what your partner is saying and give them a copy of it. It just doesn't make any sense how you would not have a flow or expect your 2A to not have a flow of what they're talking about. It's preposterous. Yeah, two, uh, two tips for doing this. The first thing is prioritize um, the case, uh, and especially if the case is a, probably going to be extended in the block or is like a big part of the 1NC. Ooh, I disagree. Uh, make sure that you have a backflow of the case because most of the time the 2A uh, is, that's the least blocked portion of the 2AC they're probably making arguments extemporaneously, and so they're not going to remember what 1AC cards they extended or sometimes even what card they read on a particular issue, whereas with a off-case argument, they're often just reading a block. So prioritize that, and then prioritize arguments that you think the 2NC is most likely to go for. So if there are a couple of throwaway arguments in the 1NC, the 2N you know, usually goes for uh, a critique, then make sure that the critique is the first thing that you backflow for your partner because you want to minimize situations where... The 2NC is ready, but the 2AC doesn't have a complete flow of the arguments. Why do you disagree, Roy? Uh, the reason I disagree with that, at least with the case component, is because I found that when I was a 2A, I would write down stuff on my flow or enough on the flow for like what I was going to respond. Slash, I would like write down, let's say, like a couple words to make sure that I said some stuff, and then I would put like an X if I was going to read a card on that argument there. And I, for the most part, had a good enough idea of what I was going to do on the case there so that I never needed the case backflow. But it was just like the off-case arguments that was just convenient to have because for the most part, the 2AC, the thing that they should be the most comfortable with, at least remembering off the top of their head, is their responses to the case arguments. And they can kind of, you should be able to recite those kind of no problem. Now, obviously, if you read like 40 cards on the case, it would be nice to know which ones you've read. But I think that you, for the most part, have a good idea of what you did there. It's just like the random off-case arguments and stuff like that that you want to have. It's more of a protect yourself protect yourself from your partner messing up and not as much you should know it. Like, I want to make sure that I forgot that, you know, that there was a, I made a non-intrinsic on the politics DA and I want to look at my flow so if they drop it, that I can remind my partner to extend it if he misses it. Whereas on the case, it was more by memory than by anything like that. So... For me, at least, if your partner is comfortable with the case, then maybe the case is an area where you can save some time and not do it. And definitely, you know, if you read, you know, if there are T violations that you think that they're not going for, it's like OSPEC or stuff like that, like you can triage what you're going to do, what you're going to backflow. And then worst case, let's say you're the 1A, you only get through like four of the off and there's like six off. When the 2AC sits down, they can backflow the last two off case, no big deal. But, you know, you have at least gotten the most important ones done. You know, if there were seven off and the only ones you would backflowed for me as a 2A sitting down were, you know, O-spec, you know, whole res or something, you know, something else, or something else stupid like vagueness, you know, I'd be a little pissed that those were the ones you decided to backflow and not a counterplan or a DA or something like that that there were more beefy responses to. One thing this also requires is that the... Uh, 1A during the cross-ex of the 2AC is not fully participating in the cross-ex. It seems like uh, that's something that everyone really likes to do. They think that it's every cross-ex is the grand crossfire, and they all want to participate. They want to ask questions. They want to answer questions. They can't be doing anything else because it's important that they stand up and you know, make everybody look at them. 
Um, but especially uh, that cross-decks more than any other. If the two A is incapable of answering questions, then you have a lot of trouble uh, on the affirmative because they have to give the last speech. And so if you can't trust your partner to answer cross-decks questions after the two AC, then you've got bigger problems. You should probably just let them fend for themselves and hopefully uh, get better. Um, but yeah, backflowing, it's important. Um, it, is am- it is amazing how much time we've had to spend to convince people on flowing. We should tally up the um, number of... We convince yeah, I was going to say, it implies that someone has... The, the amount of time that we've pissed into the wind talking about flowing. It is, of all the things that we need to go over with kids, it is amazing that there is an epidemic of flowing. That's Something that's sort of uh, relevant to that um, that we that I uh, sort of previewed before is one of the reasons that it's really important for the two A to pay attention uh, and carefully flow the negative block is so that uh, the affirmative team, not just the one A, has a complete picture of what the negatives' arguments are entering the one AR, so that you can make decisions about how to allocate your time, where to read more evidence, where to focus on your offensive arguments, where you want to put more defense, kind of what arguments or what set of arguments do you want to encourage the 2NR to go for versus deter the 2NR from going for. And all of that requires paying attention uh, to the negative block. The, um, the thing that people used to, uh, the controversy that used to uh, be around is about 1ARs not flowing the block and just flowing, uh, shadow flowing or just flowing their responses as they listen to the negative block. And the result of that was that 1As would often just spend the exact same amount of time as the negative block in terms of percentage of their speech on a given argument. So if the 2NC was five minutes of a particular argument and then three minutes of an argument and the 1NR was five minutes of an argument, the division in the 1AR would parallel that or mirror that. Um, and oftentimes that was not the correct uh, way to distribute uh, 1AR time. So Scott, um, what are some tips for 1As and just affirmative teams in general? How do you identify um, what arguments to focus on in the 1AR? How do you uh, figure out your time allocation um, things like that as you're entering a one AR. Well, I think you need to think about like how much time do you need to win an argument instead of how much time do the other team spend on something. So if the two NC spends eight minutes on politics, but only spend three seconds answering intrinsicness, you know you may dispense with the politics that's adding thirty seconds by just extending intrinsicness. So the first thing I think people, you know, like you said, just kind of mirroring block allocation. You don't have to spend a lot of time on an argument just because the negative. Like I think the classic example of this is topicality, where a lot of times the neg spends a ton of time on topicality, and the two AC had like ten to twelve arguments, and then the one AR will spend two or so minutes like, weekly extending eight arguments. When if they had spent you know thirty seconds on each of two arguments, just crushing them, you know there's no chance they would lose on topicality. And so usually that's like some kind of counterinterpretation. And then, you know, an offensive justification for that slash reason the negative is bad. And if you just win that, you're not going to lose on topicality. Whereas instead, they extend a we meet that's stupid, that they have no chance of winning, and reasonability, which they don't need because the negative's interpretation is really bad. And then they, like, in all that, don't really respond to limits and don't extend a counterinterpretation and then lose because of that. So the first thing you need to do is figure out what is your strategy for beating something and what's the minimum amount of time it can take you to win that. So if they extend 
a counter plan and a net benefit. You either need to turn the net benefit or win a huge solvency deficit and win defense against the net benefit. You don't need to do all of those things. So pick what you're going to do and then do it. Uh, and the second thing you need to consider is how many kind of independent strategies does the negative have going on in the block. So if they have three independent strategies like T, a critique, and then consult NATO, obviously you can't spend you know, more than two minutes on any one of those things if they were extended competently. So that, you know, whereas you may want to spend 30 seconds winning perm be the counter plan on NATO, you might not have that time when they extend more strategies. So in that instance, you need to, you know, extend the less arguments. Maybe you only go for one argument against the counter plan, but kind of win it competently. And I think the problem with most 1ARs is that they go for too many arguments and end up winning none of them instead of kind of collapsing down to a small amount of arguments and conclusively winning them. And so one thing that I think is that, you know, in your 1AR time allocation, you should probably be reading in most 1ARs, unless like the whole block was T, probably four to six pieces of extension evidence. And so if you're going for link turns on politics, generally you have to read at least three additional uniqueness cards and if you want to win that link turn given how most blocks would be in politics. You can't do that when you extend like 20 arguments on every flow. So if you're having trouble squeezing six cards in your 1AR, odds are you're going for way too many arguments. And the last thing I'd say about the 1AR is you need to consider if there's anything you're just like hosed on. So like they read some argument you don't really have anything on and you're going to lose on that. And in that instance, you need to kind of think of ways that you can win despite that. So like going for theory or if they have a counterpoint with two net benefits and you have really bad answers to one, you know, straight impact turning the other one so that you can generate some offense somewhere. So think about it in terms of not just how do you beat a position, but if you're really doing poorly on a different position, how can you come back to that by making more radical choices somewhere else? I think I brought this up. I know I do this with the kids in lab. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast, but the three questions you have to ask yourself if you're the 1AR. So the if I'm the 1A, I want to know three questions or ask myself these three questions. One, what do I think that they're going for in the 2NR right now? Two, what do I want them to go for in the 2NR, i.e., what do I think that we're doing the best on or have the best chance of winning? And then three... How do I get them to go for what I want them to go for instead of what they're currently planning on going for? And if you don't give your 1AR asking yourself those three questions and you just stand up and have like no common sense for your order or no reason behind the order that you give or the arguments that you're going to extend, then you've got some problems, right? You need to have a realistic assessment of where am I behind now? Is it okay? What do I need to want them to, what would I prefer that they go for? And then how do I make that 2NR go for that? And think about, you know, which where can I spend more time? Where do I need to read those cards, right? If you got to read those four to six cards that Scott's talking about, on what issue do I want to read them? How do I make their life more difficult, right? How do I make stuff happen for us so that we can win? Too many 1ARs kind of just go through the flow or go through the motions of what they're going to do without kind of thinking about how do I make the 2NR's life difficult? The 2NR is already the hardest speech and debate. It's already one where they don't have that much prep time. Probably they've got a lot of stuff to do. If you make their lives a lot easier, then you're just hurting yourself and shooting yourself in the foot. Um, there are t- there's sort of two philosophies about the 1AR that I've heard people say before, and I'll just throw those out there and kind of get your reaction to them. Um, one philosophy about the 1AR that I've heard a lot of people teach uh, or advise people in post-run discussions is to approach the 1AR like it's guerrilla warfare or terrorism or whatever to try and just uh, just kind of make life 
uh, impossible for the 2NR by um, extending a lot of arguments, extending a lot of uh, theory arguments or like independent arguments that can uh, force the 2NR to spend time there. Um, when, if ever, do you think that that is the most advisable uh, method versus, uh, Scott, what you described before where you kind of collapse down to one or two or a few arguments on each position that you then sort of vertically develop? When is the terrorism strategy, do you think, uh, advisable? Well, I guess I don't really understand how people think when they're bad that they can implement the running gun strategy. That's the big mess. It's literally you have to learn how to walk before you can run and gun. Like, the, the thing about running gun is that, like, sure, you extend a lot of arguments, but you still have to have competently extended at least some of those, if that makes sense. Like, you really conclusively win one thing and then try and make them spend a bunch of time on other things. So before, unless you can really competently win one thing, you can't then skip to the next phase of, like, trying to waste their time on a bunch of issues. So if you can't do kind of the collapse down, you're not going to be effective at the running gun. But the, really, the running gun, you do when the other team did a poor block, when they didn't develop things properly. Because if they did a really good <clears> block and develop things well, it's really easy to just, like, group blippy bad 1ARs and just say, you know, this was already addressed in the block. They blippily extended four arguments on each of those four things. We said 20 things in the block, and they dropped half of them. Um, so you need to have kind of a bad block to implement that. And you need to have, like, a less than competent 2-and-R. Because a really good 2-and-R, you know, the running gun is not going to work very effectively against them because they're going to make smart choices, and then the 2-AR is going to be all new because there wasn't enough basis for any of it in the 1-AR. Yeah, I mean, the running gun is it's tough for, I'd say, 95% of high school students to do, maybe even more than that, just because it also requires the 2-AR to have enough ethos and presence to kind of be able to pull off the... This isn't scantily extended, you know, in the 1AR, this was really there type stuff. And a lot of 2As don't have that presence. And it's also kind of requires, uh, it's more successful in college where in college some judges are more unwilling to vote against some teams when it happens. Whereas in high school, it's like, you're just a high school kid. They don't really care very much about telling you that you didn't do a particularly good job extending it. Whereas in college, you're telling someone, you know, who's been pretty good for many years, this was, you know, you did a pretty crappy job of extending it. But, you know, I, you know, I debated with someone who loved giving the run-and-gun 1AR, and it, it's it's not the easiest to always give a 2AR about. So I, I would recommend thinking smart, and, you know, like Scott said, like, learning how to do the right things first, and then finding and picking those spots where you need it. Because it's definitely one of those where it seems like 1As have become very dependent on extending every single argument rather than, you know, vertical, you know, just like making, you know, a bunch of arguments that are necessary and that are important. I remember that Scott and I did a practice debate against uh, Stephen Wheel and Julie Hohen a couple of years ago, and we were at, and we uh, were answering some relations DA, and in the two, in the 1AR, Scott extended like three answers on the relations DA. And on one of those arguments, he made, I think, 13 individual warrants. You know, it was like up to whatever J, whatever letter J is worth of warrants in that argument in and of itself, which is you can still be doing a lot, even if you're not, it's the vertical versus horizontal flow and that it might not be that you're extending a ton of arguments, but presumably you'll be saying something that requires a lot of answering. So even though he didn't extend, you know, all of my, you know, 
whatever, 10 to 12 to AC answers, he was making a ton of answers that the Twin R was going to have to deal with. So don't think that you don't have to deal with that. You know, don't think that you're not making the Twin R's life difficult by really investing in one or two arguments on a flow. I've mentioned this, I think I mentioned this before uh, on the podcast, but Will Repko uh, had a, an interesting way to put this at the SDI this summer. He said that the one AR needed to have uh, at least one entree on each flow and then a couple of appetizers, and that uh, a speech that either uh, on a given argument, if it's only an entree, uh, it's not a complete meal. If it's only a bunch of appetizers, it's not a complete meal. You need an entree argument that you kind of develop more vertically and more in depth. You're you're probably going to go for in the two AR, and then you can have a few uh, smaller arguments or lesser developed arguments to go along with that, especially if they're compatible or if they put uh, more time pressure on the two and R. But you can't just have those appetizers, um, and that's I think that's a good way to conceptualize it. That made sense to me, and I think that made sense to a lot of our students. Um, Food analogies. Food analogies are always big with me, uh, but it, it makes sense. Uh, I don't know what dessert would be in that. I guess conditionality bad. Yeah, I have conditionality bad in the podcast. Um, <clears throat> as a as a two and R Scott, what one uh, ERs or one ERs strategies? I guess did you find most difficult to answer? Did you think uh, were you more comfortable with a one ER that uh, was kind of real fast and real running gun, extended a whole lot of arguments, um, or were you? Uh, more comfortable with the one ER that kind of sat on one argument on each flow or whatever, developed it more vertically. Did you like that debate better, or did you like the kind of huge debate better? What made your life easier? Well, I mean, I guess it's like, it's all a question of how competently they they do it. I mean, obviously, if they do an exceptionally good job of collapsing down and picking the right arguments and just blowing them up, that's the toughest to deal with, because generally... You're not on the side of truth when they've done that, which is kind of problem number one. Um, number two, you know, they've, I guess, really, if they do that well, they've done a good job of kind of highlighting the weakest parts of your argument, which puts you in a bad position in the 2 and R. And, you know, in that instance, you kind of just got to go for A-spec or something. But, I mean, it's definitely much harder that than when they just extend a bunch of nonsense. Uh, what in a in a two and R against a one AR that has kind of extended a whole lot of arguments, um, but hasn't really gone in depth on any of them? Do you have some tips that two ends can use? Because a lot of times uh, the the reason I think that the the style of one AR that we're kind of criticizing has become kind of the gold standard is because kids see uh, one ARs do that and kind of spread out the two and R and the two and R like drops stuff or just doesn't uh, just gets overextended because they're trying to fully answer each argument uh, or, you know, quote-unquote argument that was in the 1AR. Uh, what can you do as a 2N to counteract uh, 1AR speeches that are very, very vertically developed but not, not very, or very horizontally developed but not very vertically developed? Well, I mean, it's the same thing. You need to choose. So, for example, if they said winners win in the 2AC, you know, you maybe said five or six things in the 2NC to respond to winners win. So when you extend that in the 2NR, you don't need to extend all six of those things. You need to pick one and may, or maybe two, um, the ones that they handle the worst or maybe drop, and extend them and explain them and impact them. So if they said winners win, um, and the one AR was just like, extend winners win, and you read Singer and like, reads another card, that should be a very easy 2NR for you because you should have had good arguments in the 2NC that are now conceded that you can just extend and explain. So the first thing you need to do is choose and go for less arguments and just kind of like explain them better. Um, but second is you kind of got to also pick issues that you're more ahead on. So, like, if the 1AR 
running guns on a T argument that you run and gun down in the block and didn't do a very good job of extending, going for that doesn't really allow you to kind of asymmetrically exploit their poor one-hour strategy because it's just like crap versus crap. But if they did on maybe it decided that you weren't planning to go for it, but that was pretty well extended, and then they kind of poorly responded, then you know make a choice to go for that. Yeah, one of the comments that I found myself giving uh, in post rounds often to the two and C, and even more frequently to the one and R, is that they need to rethink the way that they give the neg block speeches to make it easier for the two and R. Um, and what I mean by that is that a lot of times, uh, a good example is a one and R that kind of goes real deep on the case. Uh, the one and R will read a ton of cards, but do very little comparison of their cards to the AF cards. Um, they'll extend kind of a bunch of different warrants, but they won't begin the discussion of which warrant is most important or the interactions between those arguments. They'll do some kind of isolated impact calculus, but it won't be global. There's nothing that's being conceded yet. The debate is still very large. And then that puts the onus on the two and R, not only to answer the one error stuff, but also to just initiate for the first time a discussion of uh, you know, comparing evidence, comparing impacts, you know, what is the negative winning, what is the uh, affirmative winning, how does that interact? And so I think, uh, at least in the debates that I judge, um, it seems like more frequently the, the problem with a 2NR that's kind of overextended or a 2NR that doesn't, is not able to get deep on something is traceable back to uh, a 2NC and 1NR that were kind of shallow, very, very big maybe, but not very well developed. Um, and so I would say uh, if you're struggling to do to kind of cover in the 2NR and to do the kind of comparison that is required, maybe the problem isn't with your 2NR, it might be with your block speeches that you're not, you're not beginning that comparison early enough. Um, the order of arguments that you address in the 1NR is something that I don't think most students really think about. Um, Roy, you talked to our debaters today about this. What would you say, kind of big picture uh, or meta level uh, advice to, to 1ARs um, how should they construct the order of the, the issues that they address in their speech, and what factors should they take into account when they're making the, the decision about what order to give their speech in? Well, it's funny, and we were, t we were having this conversation about, you know, after a 1AR, where things should be placed and where things should not be placed, and we ended up asking our ninth grade novice, Evan Elam, about this, and... Well, he's famous. He's, he's famous now. Podcast. He doesn't even know what the 3NR is probably, but he's famous on it now. And it's kind of amazing how, as debaters sometimes get older, they sometimes like lose their sense of like rationality and reason. And <clears throat> I was just like, where would you put something that was most important? And he goes, why would you ever not put it close to the top or at the top? And I was like, you're a pretty reasonable guy, Evan Elam. And the problem that a lot of you all have is that you all get stuck putting stuff at the bottom and your response or your reasoning is, I want to get there with a ton of time. Well, let me break this down for you, for all of you listening at home. You never get there with enough time. Something happens, you get derailed, you go on a rant, you get yourself stuck somewhere, you decide to read a card, your partner tells you to go back to extend something, and then you never, <clears throat> you never get there with enough time. I'm losing my voice getting something here about this. So, if you've got something that you think is really important, then do that. Now, put it ahead in the order. Now, a lot of you all are like, well, I don't want to give the 2NR too much time to prep for it. If, they, if that extra 30 seconds where they can hear what you've said will make the difference between whether or not you're going to win or lose the debate, then you suck. 
right? Like you're in some real trouble already, right? 30 seconds should not make the difference between whether or not you're going to win or lose a debate. So make sure that you cover and that you spend more than a sufficient amount of time because here's the thing, worst case scenario, you spend some time, let's say you think they're going for the counterplan. Put the counterplan after the case in the 1AR and then put the DA at the bottom and if you somehow have extra time left at the end of the 1AR, you can always go back to the counterplan there. But if you put the counterplan at the bottom and you spent way too much time on the DA or spent way too much time on the case, then you have no chance to get that time back. And you're like, oh, well, I really, I'm winning the crap out of this advantage that the counterplan solves anyway, right? It doesn't make any sense. So when you think about your order, make sure that you put key arguments towards the top, especially in the 1AR, because you don't want to undercover those things later on in the debate. And it happens a lot, especially where like, and this, this will end up happening again in the 2NR where it becomes a cycle where arguments continuously become undercover because they're put at the bottom instead of at the top. Think about what you can afford to least cover and where you'd want to put that. If you were a smart 2A, you would never put their key offensive arg as the last argument in the 2AC because there's a risk that you would drop it. Likewise, 1AR and 2NR, you do not want to put the most dangerous arguments for you at the bottom because you do not want to risk not covering those arguments. It's easier to go back and do some stuff later than it is to ask the judge for another minute of speech time, which I don't think they're going to give you. Usually not. Uh, what do you think, Scott? What do you, if you were, if you were advising a student that said, you know, I'm having trouble. Uh, I don't really know what to think about or what factors to consider when I'm setting my one-hour order. I just kind of do it and don't put any thought into it. What would you tell them? What should they uh, think about? How can they make their speech more effective by using a, a good order? Well, to me, the order is less important than your ability to kind of accurately gauge time allocation and then stick to it. So if you can't properly gauge time allocation, you're going to mess up regardless of kind of what order. You know, Some people, that, for example, are just always top-heavy doesn't matter if they put the least important argument or the most important argument at the top. They spend way too much time on whatever's in the top. And some people just have a tendency to blow through things really quickly, and then they have, like end their speeches with minutes left at the end. So, you know, you need to figure out how long it's going to take you to do things. And so practice is obviously the best way to do that. So, you know, think I've got to extend a link turn on politics. How long is this going to take me? Figure it out. And then, you know, you arrange your order based on how long you think it's going to take you on all the sheets of paper. Like, it has to be a kind of strategic decision process. And so while I agree that you shouldn't put the most important thing on the bottom, it's also simplistic to just say, most important thing at top done. So you got to got to figure out how much time it's going to take you on things. Teach them to walk before you teach them to run. So you're saying walking is put the most important thing on top? I mean, at a minimum. I mean, if they could figure out what they were doing right and what they're doing wrong, then they wouldn't need this to begin with. Is what I'm saying. They need, but they need a little bit more. Some structure would be good for them because well, if, if they could allocate their time well, then well, if they're just dropping whatever's on the bottom, it doesn't matter if they drop what's the most important or least important. It becomes the most important after yeah. it got dropped. Yeah, but um, if, if I mean, in some instances, yes. Some instances, it's not that bad. I mean, it's a, you can sacrifice that. One thing that um, I, I haven't seen anyone do this, uh, at least to, uh, I haven't noticed it, I, I severely, severely doubt that people are actually doing it, but one thing that I was taught um, and that I taught students to do for a while, but I've kind of stopped doing that, is uh, to actually physically write down the amount of time that you want to have left after you're finished with a flow. 
uh, especially for the one air and the two air because they're so time pressured. So if you wanna, if you're putting topicality first and you wanna have four minutes left when you're done with topicality, I would tell the student to consciously, you know, make that choice and then write four minutes at the top or bottom of their flow and then convey that to their partner so that when they get to four minutes, you know, that's the time that you need to be done. Uh, and the partner can kind of help say, okay, you gotta be done there in four minutes or whatever um, to try and keep you on target. Um, but I think if, if people would just think about how much time, not just abstractly, but specifically how much time they think that they want to invest in a particular argument. Now, obviously, sometimes you're wrong, but the more you do it and you can kind of get a sense, uh, it's only a five-minute speech, so it's, uh, it's not a huge amount of time. You can kind of just get a sense for how much time you want to spend there, how much you need to spend there, and then to, to physically, the act of marking it down and then you know, showing it to the partner or talking to the partner about where they want to allocate time, I think could help... Um, overcome the, the issue where it's just kind of put it in an order and then just talk and hopefully it, it all fits together. Um, did either of you uh, either do that or see people doing that and do you think that uh, makes sense? Well, I mean, it makes sense in terms of if you actually stick to it, which I don't think most people that I've seen do that are very good at doing. So it's kind of one of those things like if you're going to do it, you have to actually follow it, otherwise you're just kind of like wasting time. And I've never seen anyone be like, in the middle of the sentence, see that they've gotten four minutes and be like, yeah, and then moved on. And then moved on. And generally, they're just like, oh, well, whatever. I'll just keep keep talking. Yeah, yeah one thing that's, uh, that is that is true, when uh, oftentimes when the 2A will prompt the 1A or when the 1N sometimes would prompt the 2N, uh, it's funny because the, the partner will be like, move on, move on, move on. First of all, obviously, just keep talking for another 15 seconds and then move on. Well, I like, the, that I like the hand motions when they can't see you doing the hand <coughs> motions as if, if, as if you fanning yourself... With the move on sign and something like that. hand motions when they can't see it. You mean like right now when you're doing a hand motion? Hand motion right. Right. Yeah. Right. That, exactly. the, the, the special video that podcast the, is available for our iTunes subscribers only. That was part of the joke. I don't think it was. Uh, <laughs> um, one other technique or one thing about about the one ER that I think is is a lost art, and I'm not sure how you how you guys feel about this. I have a feeling that this is probably something that Scott likes. Um, but it used to be there was more thought put into or more planning about sandbagging really good evidence for the 1AR. Uh, so on the 2AC, uh, the winner's win example maybe is a good example. The 2AC reads a piece of evidence, kind of a Gennaro card, the Singer card, or an old Ornstein card about winner's win. Uh, and then the 1AR reads two or three like good, more recent cards, more issue-specific cards. Um, that uh, extend that argument, and the goal of that is that the 2NC maybe wouldn't take it as seriously or the 1R wouldn't take it as seriously because the 2AC, they thought maybe that evidence wasn't so good, so they kind of blow off the argument. Uh, then the 1ER extends that argument and then reads some more evidence to support it. Um, do you, does that make sense as a strategy? Is that something that you see people doing? Do you think people should do that more? Um, just kind of read, save real good quality evidence for the 1ER? They have trouble covering already. If you like try to... like. I mean, obviously the goal is to get them to read a couple cards in the 1AR if possible, but I mean, the 1AR is short, and considering, I mean, it requires sacrificing arguments, which I guess hopefully they'll start doing, but I just don't see 1ARs making that, especially, it's, I think it's easier to do in college where you get that extra minute to kind of work around a little bit more, but I mean, five minutes really isn't very much time. I think that if your A strat is hope that the 2NC undercover something and then the 1AR will read that evidence. Like, what if, like, you know, something, you know, the crap hits the fan and you got to deal with a bunch of other stuff and then the 1AR doesn't get to it? I think that it's a kind of, like, risky proposition in terms of that. 
I mean, considering the fact that anyway, people don't read other people's evidence, I think just reading the 2AC, it's pretty safe that they won't look at it and won't compare it and won't talk about it. They'll ask you to jump into them, though. That's for sure. <laughs> After that, they will I mean, the problem with this strategy is that it requires they have to have gone through all their evidence and determined what the best cards were, like rank them, which I don't yeah. think anyone knows. That's true. Um, I guess I, I saw a debate at St. Mark's, uh, quarters, uh, quarterfinals debate between... Uh, college prep and Pembroke Hill that I thought was a really good debate and in the one air on that debate um, Vinay Pai from college prep gave just a fantastic speech where he read um, I don't remember how, exactly how many cards but it was probably in the neighborhood of eight cards uh, in a big debate about Afghanistan and the uh, it was refreshing because it was the first time in a while that I had seen a one air really read a lot of evidence and I think it was in a debate where reading evidence was important because the negative block had a lot of evidence. It was kind of an evidence-intensive debate about uh, the current state of the war, about the effectiveness of coin. Um, and that was a, an example of a speech that I thought was real good uh, because it was very evidence-intensive. Obviously, there are debates where that isn't the best strategy, but um, it sure seems like the trend is one ARs read no cards or maybe they read one card, uh, and it's kind of an afterthought. Um, I would definitely encourage people, especially, I mean, you kind of have to assess, is this a debate where the evidence is important? Uh, but if it is, and especially if you have a judge that's very evidence-intensive, uh, if the only evidence you have on an issue is the 1AC evidence and maybe a card from the 2AC, and the negative has you know, read three cards in the 1NC, and then they've read another five cards in the negative block, you're putting yourself in a very tough position. So I think 1AR should not be scared to uh, read evidence. They should, that should be the goal. Um, and to, to think about what evidence can be is sort of best for the 1AR is something that it would be worth spending time for. Um, one thing that we also talked to our kids about was uh, writing 1AR blocks or what, what a 1AR block even is and what how you should use it, uh, kind of how extensive it should be on what issues it should be. Um, I guess neither one of you did a ton of 1ARs, but what... Uh, Scott did. Scott did a lot of 1ARs? That Scott was always... No, he did two A's. Did the one for a long time, Scott? How much? I think we've. I think I've asked you this before, but refresh me and our listeners. How much uh, sort of pre-round one AR stuff did you did you do? Um, and do you think that uh, it's worth it for students who are doing the one AR to prepare in advance? If so, kind of what do they need to prepare in advance? Um, well, I mean, certain things I just always had. Like I always had kind of like all theory arguments, that kind of thing. Because I just like very early on sat down and did it. So there was ever a debate where we had to win on conditionality. I would always be ready for that. So that's kind of like the things that will be most broadly applicable across your whole career. So having that done really well, you know, you'll be able to use that a lot. Um, you know, before each tournament, like the major politics disaster or whatever, after my partner like figured out what cards they were reading the 2AC, I would, you know, look at what those said, look at what potential neg cards said, and kind of like organize evidence. Um, that I would think that I would need to read, but you know, most of the time I didn't so much select evidence for what the one AR because more I would just like see what the, my partner wanted me to extend or what they wanted me to say, and then I would kind of do that. Um, I mean, one thing that I think is very helpful is just like after every one AR, I have like the five or six most important arguments. I would just kind of type up what I said, so I always had that. So if round one of the tournament, you know, a new politics disad came out that had a you know, internal link problem. I would write up everything that I said about that, so if we debated it again, I would already have that ready to go. And so if you do, you know, five to ten of those after every debate, you know, after the first couple of tournaments, that's like hundreds of 1AR blocks that you'll have. So it's not so much you need to, like, sit down on Monday 
and just start writing blocks and do it like the whole week. If you just kind of do it as you go, that'll help out. And I mean, once you do that a lot, once you write a lot of those blocks, it's a, it becomes less necessary because you know the structure of like how it needs to go. And for every argument, it's just kind of like extend your warrants and then start responding to things the negative said. And once you get that kind of framework down, it's a lot easier to do it on the fly. And so just kind of like rote repetition, doing it over and over and over again, it becomes easier to do automatically. Yeah, I think we talked about this uh, with our kids at some point, was that these 1AR blocks and blocks, you know, blocks for the 1AR specifically become, are like kind of like cheat sheets, where there's, none of these kids will ever have seen this episode, this TV show, because they're way too young, but Growing Pains, remember Growing Pains? You remember Growing Pains. So, there's a, I, I remember this, there's an episode of Growing Pains where he like, plans on cheating by like, writing all the answers on like, the bottom of his shoe. And because he spends all this time like writing the answers on the bottom of the shoe, he actually knows the answers to them. So he doesn't need the shoe, but then he ends up getting caught because his shoe has all the answers. But the point is, is that you know the repetition of doing this means that by the end of the year, by the middle of the year, by part of the year, you should know that, right? If you write your conditionality 1AR blocks and you practice giving them and you give them a couple of times, by the time you've gone for it for the fifth or sixth time, you should be able to have that argument relatively memorized. Kind of like what Scott talked about reading, uh, the th- making sure that you read and diversify the things that you read so that when you are presented with that situation, like you can memorize those things and are put in that position where you have that all down there. So have them down, practice them at first, and then as you get more comfortable, you will be able to execute off those blocks. The goal of the blocks is to make you more efficient. Now, it's important that when you write these blocks, you make sure that you practice reading them so that you test, make sure that they're not too wordy. Because what ends up happening is people will write out blocks, and when you write out blocks, sometimes people have the tendency to write out way too much. You need to make sure that you write out the block the first time, and then you get it down to kind of like the meat and potatoes of what you need, like the claim warrant. Especially in the 1AR, there's no time for the shnashna, right? You've got to say what you need to say and get done with it because this isn't the 2AR. And I think that a lot of those 1AR blocks end up looking like 2ARs because they're so wordy. So write the 1AR block, then practice giving the 1AR with those 1AR blocks. Look at what's good, what can be cut out, and then kind of take them down. But there's no excuse for not having things like theory and stuff pre-written so that you don't need any prep and so that you can actually sound confident on it. Yeah, I think one thing that uh, is, is helpful to think about is you should write out the argument in advance just on your own time. It's not even really a block, but you should type out the argument in its complete form so that if that was the central issue in the debate, you've gone through and thought about, okay, what is the complete argument? And then you should prepare your scripts or your explanations for use in the debate that are short, kind of bullet pointy, so that in the debate you are just triggering your memory of the full explanation. But just like in uh, the growing pains example, though, just the process of writing out your argument uh, will help you internalize it, memorize it, uh, and just make sense of it. If the first time that you've had to fully explain an argument is in front of a judge, then you have made a mistake because you're essentially doing your practice run or your um, your audition in front of the judge. You want to practice that beforehand, kind of work things out uh, on your own, and then the preparation materials that you take into the debate are just kind of little helpful reminders of the things that you've already thought about uh, and already worked on. 
Um, so the when when at least when I say one AR block uh, to a student, where I say I think it would be helpful if you had a one AR block there, I don't mean like a big paragraph of explanation that you read like you were reading a piece of evidence. I mean a couple of notes, maybe references to the evidence that you want to uh, cross apply or extend from previous speeches, uh, a key comparison or a key reason to prefer one of your pieces of evidence, something like that, that will then trigger the preparation that you did before the tournament, kind of trigger your memory of that and your explanation of that. Um, yeah, I think one problem is that, like, most 1As, I don't think ever spend any time going through the 2AC blocks and, like, learning what the evidence says and what the warrants are. So, like, you'll see in cross-ex the 1AC when they ask a question, they're like, oh, well, that's this card and this card and this card says that. And then they extend the 2AC cards in the 1A and they're like, extend that card, it's good. And it's like, mind. The citation I forgot, uh... Prefer it. It's recent and qualified. Yeah, that, that's something I've noticed a lot, too. That's a, that's a very good point. I think um, the, the amount of evidence that uh, people have now uh, and the amount of evidence that's available to people, I think, has gotten people kind of overwhelmed. It used to be, you know, the AF only had so many cards, uh, and so it was pretty easy to just kind of know all the cards you had, and oftentimes you didn't really have great cards and some issues, but you kind of made do with what you had. Uh, and so you could explain, you know, your ten cards about an advantage uh, pretty well. You could make them apply to most of the things that the native would say. Now, when you've got half files that have hundreds of cards in them, um, they're they're kind of a waste if the one ear doesn't know what they say. You know, which ones are best in which circumstances, what the reasons to read a particular piece of evidence versus all the other available evidence are. Um, so it's really not even worth it to have all that evidence unless both debaters understand it and kind of know which ones to pick and which ones apply best. Uh, in each situation. And it is true that it seems like a lot of preparation is done where the, the 2N1A does NAG work, the 2A1N does AF work, and then they just meet in the debates and they do their debate. But outside of uh, the debates themselves, there's very little kind of crossover or collaboration. The same thing then happens when the negative, when the 1N is asked to extend arguments on the case or a disad or whatever that they haven't prepared. Uh, they end up, you know, not sounding very good because they don't really know what that file is because they're kind of the AF person, so they do the AF work. Um, so finding ways to kind of work on both sides of the argument, especially finding ways if you're the 1A to, to be more prepared and be more familiar with your AF files, I think will pay uh, a lot of dividends for you. I think that's also conversations that just needs to be, these are conversations that need to be had as a team, right? And you need to, the 2A and the 1A need to speak before the prep time of the 1AR and discuss what arguments they need to have. And I think that, uh, I know that some college teams do this and maybe it's worth doing, you know, on our squad and I don't know how many high school teams do this and I don't know if Emory does this now or not, but like, it seems like that, just like that there are AF meetings and NEG meetings that everyone just become a part of where it's not just the two A's meet and discuss it, but it's where everyone is like, all right, this is going to be an AF session. These are the two AC blocks that we have. This is where we need to do that. And maybe as a team, you set up an AF meeting where once a week you go over what are the developments in our AF, what has changed over the last couple of weeks, what has changed over the last week, how are we going to do this, or maybe make a set of 2AC blocks that you're going to go over and have a discussion and an agreement about what needs to be done. Because especially considering how many of these people are paperless, like it used to be that you had to go borrow the AF expandos from the 2A and get that and they had it at home and they forgot to bring it in and they didn't want to bring it in, they were going to be working on something. So you never had a copy of it. Now, everyone's got everyone's 2AC blocks. 
There's no reason why you should be able to work on this even on your own time. If your 2A doesn't want to meet with you, they hate you, they think you stink, you know, something's wrong with you, you smell bad, you need a shower, then you can still look over the 2AC blocks and know what needs to get done. So there's no excuse for not having that done. You know, it just it's it takes a lot of work to be good. And you can't just do the basic, oh, I'm the 2N, I'm going to show up and I'm not going to do that. Or conversely, there are 1Ns who are like, I can't take that DA, I don't know what it says. You did not look... You've had this DA in the e-tub for how long? What, what, what do they call it nowadays? E-tubs? Is that what they're called? They, in the tub for that long and you just couldn't look at it? I mean, give me a break. Yeah, I think to, there's too much kind of uh, self-imposed specialization. Uh, debate is a lot different than football. There's not offensive players and defensive players. Uh, where, you know, in a football team, the Patriots defense doesn't really need to talk to the Patriots offense. They don't have to talk to the offensive coordinator. They just kind of do their own thing. In debate, it's a two-person team on both sides. So whether you're F or neg, you need both debaters to know what's going on in order to win a debate. There's certainly cases where if you're just better than the other team, you know, a good 2A can just win an F debate or a good 2N can win an egg debate. Uh, but ultimately, it's a team activity. And so your preparation needs to take into account that you're not going into a debate as, you know, Joe the 2A. You're going into the debate as Joe and John, the AF team. And you have to think about your preparation in that way. Um, and the other thing is I think people are too caught up. We've been, I've, I've definitely mentioned this on the podcast before, um, but I think it bears repeating that people's conception of what constitutes debate work is too limited. They think that debate work means cutting cards, uh, and so they cut cards, lots of times bad cards that you know are not really very important, uh, when in reality part of doing debate work is preparing your files and just reading your files and understanding the arguments uh, and practicing reading them. I thought that... Uh, you know, Roy mentioned it a few minutes ago, but Scott's most recent article about how you need to practice reading uh, using all of your materials, not just reading your 1AC 6,000 times, um, is really important because you need to be familiar with all of the materials that you have access to so that when you go into a debate, you're confident that you know what's going on, you know what you have, you know the strengths and weaknesses of your arguments, of your files. Um, and if you don't have that, then you're really not prepared to debate. So I think even if you've cut a lot of cards before the tournament, you haven't really worked as much or as intelligently as you should have. So consider the time that you spend going through files, preparing them as debate work in the same way that cutting new cards is debate work. Well, let me ask you a couple questions, Bill. So I'm correct that you do the Afghanistan work for your team? Uh, at the beginning of the year, I did a lot of it. Um, the 2A on our top team does it. Uh, and has done it for the last tournament. Uh, and now for the Glenbrooks, I'm going to be doing don't tell something. Them, don't, don't tell them that I'm working on Afghanistan. Oh, I, I thought you were going to tell them what you're actually working on. I'm working on something else in addition to Afghanistan. So, yes. Okay, we'll edit that part out. Uh, <laughs> so, when you do an app like that, then what is kind of your expectation for like what, how the kids should familiarize themselves with it without having to be the person who reads all the articles and whatnot? <laughs> well, the. Uh, you all know, the kids, with this. We, we've, there's been various ways to do with this. Um, all the kids have um, my shared folders on Dropbox, and I would say that 90%, um, maybe a little bit less at the beginning of the year when I, when I did more background stuff, but uh, since then, at least 90%, probably more of the evidence that I've uh, cut has been from uh, Google Reader, and so the students get all of the same articles that I get. So the expectation is that they're reading those articles. And, and how is Google Reader connected to Dropbox? I, I don't know why I said Dropbox before. Oh, I meant okay. Google Reader. That was confusing. Uh, I thought that maybe I said Dropbox. I was going to correct myself. Um, so Google Reader, sorry. 
uh, Google Reader feeds. So there are a series of bundles that I have uh, made available to the team, and they're actually available to anyone if anybody else wanted them. Um, and so Afghanistan articles, the two A's in particular, are supposed to be following up on that. I actually just posted today a new blog that I wanted everyone to add and read on a daily basis, even the uh, two ends that just provides updates about Afghanistan. Um, but the goal should be that they're cutting some cards, but more importantly, that they're just reading all of that. And then any time that either myself or one of the other debaters, the, the 2A uh, on our uh, top team, produces a new file, the expectation is that uh, everyone goes through those files and the 2As from the teams incorporate those into their private uh, affirmative blocks and tubs or whatever we want to call them. So it's you should be reading the articles as they come through so that when you find out that there's some negotiations occurring with the Taliban, for example, that's not something that's brand new to you when you're reading evidence. It's something that you've uh, sort of familiarize yourself with just from reading articles. Uh, the thing that you get then is just some processed evidence from the articles that theoretically you are uh, already reading. Now the question is, are people actually reading them or are they just waiting to receive uh, cards and that's sort of our conundrum at the moment. Well, I think, this, I think the bigger picture struggle than that is, and this is the part that's kind of like frustrated me a lot about high school 2As versus or at least high school 2As with coaching versus, you know, some college 2As or at least a higher level college 2As that I think that the 2A needs to be really hands-on in creating the file. And I think that, you know, our kids and a lot of other kids have the luxury of having an app that is kind of a large part is given to them at some point and then they need to acclimate themselves with it. Whereas their understanding of it might be significantly better if they were in a position where they had to do it. But of course, because they know that someone else is working on it, they're not as compelled to do as much work on that. I'm guessing that's kind of what you were asking about, like in getting background knowledge, Scott, in that if you haven't read all of the Afghanistan app, you know, if a 2A on our team doesn't hasn't read the whole file, they're not going to know it. And even if they have read it, they're not going to know the stuff that Bill necessarily knows having written the app itself. And I think that it is their burden to go back and read that, you know, and go back and read the articles and read key stuff because a lot of stuff, a lot of, you know, knowledge that Bill has about Afghanistan is comes from stuff that wasn't in cards or weren't cards that were turned out, but just that he's done by reading. And I think that that's why a good 2A should ideally be writing their app or have a large part in writing their app, not just updating the app because those that's it's that writing process where you get to really know the material that you're working with and it's not just the cards it's having an understanding of the background of key arguments of you know who parties that are involved that goes beyond just pieces of evidence it's you know it's really being able to explain stuff coherently so do you just turn out like cards then bill or do you write blocks too I just turn out cards. So do the kids write blocks and then like send them to you, or how does that work? Well, that's the the goal is for they each have private tubs on our Dropbox, and uh, the sort of the requirement or the expectation is that for each tournament they update their blocks utilizing uh, the new evidence if necessary or not, but that they have their own affirmative files that they've each written their own blocks for, which was sort of the expectation that is a remnant of before we did the paperless sharing thing. Uh, what we found in practice is that 
they've kind of, the, the two A's in particular who are most responsible for writing the two AC blocks have kind of teamed up to share responsibility so that some of them write some blocks, others write others, and then they just trade them. Uh, they just steal them from other teams or, you know, steal in quotes, copy them, uh, just take blocks that others have written. And oftentimes they, don't, they aren't really producing updated or improved blocks. They're just kind of, uh, they, they've made their block to a certain argument, so they, they consider that done. Um, and so it's been difficult. We have obviously a very young team to uh, try and get the students sort of to figure out what, what we mean by preparing updated affirmative files. So my goal would be for, for each tournament for them to have new 2AC blocks to show me and then we can go through and talk about, you know, I think maybe this evidence isn't best here. I think maybe we need to move this argument up. I think this is more important. Um, and that's the kind of thing that you know, Roy mentioned, the AF meeting uh, idea. I think that's, that's probably something that we're going to end up doing. Um, that makes a lot of sense to just kind of discuss as a team, you know, where do we think we're strongest? How can we most effectively uh, spin our arguments or, you know, sort of emphasize particular parts of our affirmative? Um, but the goal is sort of they should be reading along. They get evidence uh, or carded evidence, but it's primarily of things that they should have already read, uh, and some of them cut it on their own. Uh, and then they produce two AC blocks that we then talk about, and kind of that becomes the affirmative that they read in the debate. I think I don't know if we did we we might have talked about this on the podcast, or we might have had this conversation off the air. But I think there was also like a, just a general concern with the way paperless was developing that a lot of the younger kids are not placed with the burden of writing their own blocks because with these private tubs they're not locked or anything like that. So a younger team on our squad can take the top team's 2AC blocks, or a younger team on any squad can take the top team's 2AC blocks, copy, paste, save it into theirs, and say that they've got the tubs. Now, obviously, they can just copy that by hand if they're just doing it, you know, with paper, but with paperless, it's easier for them to kind of, you know, fly under the radar and make it seem as if they're doing work, but not really have that work done. And I don't know... You know, other than kind of like really going over and making sure that they're not doing that, there's you know, it's definitely a concern. Yeah, Jenny Haidt discussed that in the Rostrum article. I think that we probably talked about that after it came out, um, of her kind of experiences after year one uh, doing the paperless thing. And that was one thing that she emphasized as a downside was that in the past she could uh, kind of go to a team's uh, tub, grab their affirmative to AC accordions, uh, and go through them and kind of see what the debater had put together. And that was a good check on uh, to see how much work they were doing, the quality of their work, whether they were keeping up to date or not. Uh, and it's harder to do that now because the evidence is so, uh, and the blocks are just so easily copied or transferred or whatever. Um, the, the, the thing that I think has been hard for me to communicate to our students and that I think a lot of students don't really understand is that, yes, there are good 2AC blocks and bad 2AC blocks sort of at the extreme. There are ones that you know, make good arguments and are formatted well. Uh, kind of in an intelligent order, consistent, things like that. And then there are 2AC blocks that are horrible, that are not strategic or that have arguments in strange orders or are internally inconsistent, things like that. But the sort of the in-between is uh, there's a, a large range of possible 2ACs that could be created and that could serve their purpose in a debate. And students are too uh, worried about having the you know, the 2AC block to a particular argument. They don't understand that when they're asked to produce a 2AC uh, block, it's not that they're being asked to produce one correct 2AC block, but rather that they need to take the evidence that they have, take the knowledge that they have of the affirmative, and then construct their 2AC block. 
uh, and there can be improvements made to it. Some can be better than others, but the fact that they are the ones that have produced it and that it's based on their knowledge, their language, their wording, you know, their uh, preferences about what they can explain better, what they have more confidence in, that is what makes a good 2AC block versus it fitting the kind of mold that maybe a different team on their, on their school uh, squad would have. So the, the goal when you're producing 2AC blocks is not just to have you know, the best 2AC block, is to have your best 2AC block, the one that you can best explain and that you're most comfortable with and that uses the evidence that you're most familiar with. Um, and that's the thing that we've had trouble, or at least I've had trouble, uh, communicating to people, I think. You're listening to The 3NR Podcast at podcast.the3nr.com. thing on the agenda for tonight is something that has just sort of started to become a discussion uh, on the internets. Um, there was a post about it on the, uh, the college uh, CETA forum um, that I'm not sure that all of our uh, listeners have checked out, but there's a growing trend. Uh, I'm not sure how many people necessarily are on board with this yet, but there's certainly now discussion of whether it makes sense for judges uh, to be participating in the evidence sharing process during the course of a debate. So the way that paperless goes down now usually is that uh, a a speaker is finished preparing their speech, they put their speech on a flash drive, give the flash drive to the other team, the other team opens it on their computers, all four members of the debate or participants in the debate are looking at a speech document that has evidence and the counterplan text and permutations and things like that in it, but the judge is excluded from that discussion. So when evidence is referenced in the cross-ex or when uh, the counterplan text is read. You know, the judge is often the last person to know what's going on. And in the past, we just kind of live with that uh, necessity because there was paper evidence. There was only one copy of it, and so obviously the judge couldn't review it. But in the world of paperless, some people have thought, hmm, maybe it would make sense for the judge to be uh, kind of in on this. Uh, and I'm curious, uh, this isn't so much helpful for the students out there, but it's certainly something to think about and just kind of think about the sort of our vision of what the activity should be about. Uh, I'm curious to get your feedback or your thoughts about whether you think that judges should participate in the evidence sharing process during the debate. So, uh, Roy, you wanna you wanna chime in on uh, should judges, if if you're the judge, should judges get the ev during the debate? There are definitely some times where like a counterplan has been very long, a text to counterplan has been very long, and in the cross ex they're like the, neither team will really talk about like the specific line that they're kind of asking about, but both sets have the knowledge of that, and that's a situation where I would like to maybe see uh, the text so that I can follow along with uh, what they're doing. But I think that for the most part, I don't really like the reading the evidence as the debate is going on. And I think that the big, I I haven't read any of these posts to be fair to what's going on. So I don't know that the arguments, and I won't read them. I don't know what the arguments are being made for or against it. But my gut feeling is this, and especially in college debate, this has become predominant. I think it is in high school debate, and I think Scott will agree with me, is that a lot of the times, a huge percentage of debates that are judged in college are decided solely based on evidence quality, where it's like the quality of the evidence dictates who will win. It's like, basically, 
you might as well present all the cards to the judges at the end of the debate. They'll read all the cards and decide who has the best cards. And I think the reason that is bad is that it kind of takes out some of the individual debating and kind of the burden that people have, right? It's very easy for me to look at a team's uniqueness card and say, like, eh, I don't think that uniqueness card is very good. But I want the other team to say that. I want the other team to be making those arguments. And I feel like kind of this gives judges, especially at the NDT and other big tournaments where judges just don't feel as confident in their decisions. They're just like, well, their card says this, or they've got a card that says that. Well, I don't give a crap that they've got a card that says that. The other, They've got to make arguments in addition to that. And I think that, you know, if the motivation is I want to read this evidence before, I think that I don't want my assessment of that evidence beforehand to dictate what's going on or to affect the outcome of that. I want the debaters to create the decision way for me to decide the debate and then for me to call that. I don't mind telling a team at the end of the debate, hey, you really should have pointed out that their uniqueness evidence wasn't really good. I would have been compelled by that argument. I want them to kind of be doing that work for me. I don't want to do that ahead of time. I think that having too much information about the evidence quality as the debate progresses affects you too much because you in the back of your head are like, oh man, that card really sucks. I can't believe they're not saying that. And I, while it probably saves time and it might, you know, help out at the end, there are a lot of decisions take way too long anyway, and there are a lot of ways to save time in debates. I don't think that reading the evidence beforehand is really going to do that. And also, then it has to be jumped to you, and it's just, you know, just read the cards at the end of the debate that you need to decide. Or don't be so dependent on reading evidence when you decide the debates and let the debaters decide the outcome of the debate. What do you think, Scott? I mean, during the debate, I'm already, like, checking my email, cutting cards, like, watching a movie. <laughs> We're not like, having time to be reading. I probably cut more cards during debates than I do out of them. Because, like, every time a, te- a team says something that just, like, offends me, I'm like, that's so dumb. <laughs> I can't help myself. I'm immediately on Google Books, like, looking for a card to answer and, like, OCR in it. Um, well, I mean, I guess, like, I, I do agree with Roy that I... I mean, I just don't know, like, what is the impetus for judges wanting to see all this stuff, like, as the debate is going on? I mean, it just seems like they're going to do the same thing debaters do and not flow instead of the speech dialogue. I've never been in a debate where I'm like, gee, I wish I could see this yeah. card right this second. I can't wait till the end of the decision. You know, I'm usually saying, round. gee, I want to be out of this debate round right this second. The, the only time that I've ever wanted to read evidence during the debate was when it gets talked about in the cross-ex. Um, the... I don't remember who, who suggested this, but uh, in a lecture room at one of the college debate camps, someone said, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if when they're cross-texting about a card, everyone could see it on a projector or whatever, so that when they're like, this un-underlined sentence says this, and the other person's like, no, it doesn't. Flow the cross-ex? Yeah, that's true, but it would be nice to, to see that context. But I do agree. I think that uh, one of the points that was made uh, in the CETA discussion, and I, I want to attribute it to Mike Hester, but that could be wrong, um, but I'm pretty sure that it was uh, him who said this, is that the more that we make debate exclusively about the research that we do, uh, the less kind of reason to exist we have. Um, because while we do do a lot of research, the quality of our research is not up to snuff for uh, what would be expected in academic circles. We, you know, cutting the Corsi card is not acceptable research in other... God, can uh, I stop you right there? Because this is, the, this is the kind of crap that drives me up the wall which is, like, people who judge the quality of the activity based on, like, the absolute worst of everything that happens. It's like, the research we do is not the Corsi card. One person cut that, 
in 2005, and since then everyone has just like recycled it. It's not like thousands of people across the country sit down for 10 hours every day and are like, I'm going to cut the Corsi card 100 times, okay? So the idea that we don't do academic level research is that is just preposterous. But also, well, I mean, having had classes with people who aren't in debate, I'll take the research skills of anyone in debate versus any academic not in debate every day and twice on Sunday. It's just like not even close. So it's like, do we cut bad cards for strategic purposes? Yes. Does that mean we are not doing good research? Obviously not. This is the Gary Busey thing again. You don't make laws based on Gary Busey because he's the exception to the rule. He's not the norm. It's not like we should ban cars because Gary Busey... Well, let me talk about people. Oh, I used, I've used this example. It's like a Bill Maher comedy bit. But it's like, it's like we make drug often. laws based on Gary Busey, but not all kinds of other laws because it would be retarded to do so. Similarly, if you take the absolute worst parts of debate and then be like, oh, well, this clearly shows we're not academic. But if you take average debate research and put it up against average research papers written by non-debate college students... It's not going to be close. Yeah, but obviously that, they're idiots. Well, that implies that the the purpose of debate is to teach students how to do research. And if we wanted to teach students how to do research, we wouldn't have to fly to debate tournaments, and we could well, no, we uh, clearly do that to like hang out with our friends. Of course. So the the motivation for and I, I actually, I mean, I agree with you, obviously, to some extent. But a lot of the research that we do, if you if you speak to people who are former debaters that go on to have careers in government or in the law or whatever, the one of the things that they uh, always say when they come back and talk to debaters is that uh, the sort of source quality of a of an argument matters much more in the real world than it does to us in debate. Um, you know, yeah, what he sees are filled with cards from well, right? But the the activity, if the only purpose of our activity is to produce research, we've clearly come up with a game that disincentivizes quality research at the expense of just having a published well, work that says qual- the fact that we read poorly qualified evidence proves the sole purpose of the activity, even in its current form, is not research. Right, that's that's my point, is that the purpose of debate needs to be more than just the production of research or the creation of research. It needs to be the well, communication the of that arguments. research. Yes, exactly. One part of that is research. Exactly. Uh, and if the more that we move toward the exclusive evidence focus, the less reason we have to exist, because we could certainly do better research and we could certainly eliminate some of the poor uh, research practices that we rely upon uh, if we altered the activity in ways that didn't incentivize those things. So the people yeah, that the, the, the point you and Hester are making relies on a false dichotomy that the two poles of debate are communication and research. And would neither of them? No, I don't. I don't think that. I don't. I don't think that the opposite is communication. I think the opposite. Well, that's not an opposite. What Hester well, he thinks that. I mean, I, I. I think his argument is that the uh, the communication aspect is teaching students to communicate arguments, to make good arguments. And the function of debate, uh, whether it's oral communication or written communication or whatever, the function of debate is to teach students to be persuasive on public policy issues, teach students to make good arguments. And if the uh, question is, can students just research good arguments, then that eliminates the need for much of what we do in the activity. If the point is to uh, balance the kind of what other people have said versus we have kind of taken what other people have said and constructed compelling arguments, we've thought about ways to frame arguments, we've thought about ways to make arguments more persuasive, then we have a reason to exist because we're doing something that is unique and valuable. Whereas if our only function is to excerpt published work, we're not doing a great job of that because a lot of the work that we are excerpting is not very good. 
And we could certainly uh, stop doing debate tournaments. We could stop doing the oral aspect of the activity if all we needed to do was just come up with good cards. And the metric for what would constitute a good card would change because no longer is it, you know, there, is there the time limit of the debate? And, you know, if you have a card on an issue and the other team doesn't, you win automatically uh, or you certainly have the advantage or whatever. Um, those things would all go away. So the people that are 100% focused on evidence, and there certainly are people uh, that believe that or people that believe that evidence should be the primary motivation of debate, I think have lost sight that we're not, I mean, yes, we do good research in comparison to other undergraduate students or other high school students, but the output of debate, like all of the money that high schools and colleges spend on debate, uh, has not produced you know, much that is uh, useful for the public or for policymakers or whatever. It's not well, like... Just, you, well, just homogenize like five or six views into like a straw man. I don't know anyone who says we should fund debate just to teach people research. There are people who think when they judge debates that research is important, and there are people who think debate as an activity teaches people important life skills, mm -hmm. but I've never seen anyone who says the only value of debate is research, and that's why we fund it, is to teach people to do research. Well, I think there's also some middle ground there in what you're saying, because if it's true, if Hester or whatever et al.'s argument is true that, you know, there needs to be a communication aspect of this, I think that the crappier the research is, the better you have to be at debating in order to sell that crappy research. There comes, like, there, there, does that make sense? Whereas sure. if it was solely based on, like, good evidence by every team, then the communication aspect wouldn't work, but it, then it would just be, like, debating out the good cards. But it's like, you know, you can only get away with a really crappy advantage if you're able to kind of, you know, sell and spin that in a way that kind of makes sense. And I think that, I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the ultimate goal of debate is to me. It's always been, like, it's just, like, a competitive game that kind of makes you smarter. If at the end of the day you realize that some of the stuff that you do is kind of crappy, you know, so uh, even, even some of our best research is, you know, not academically rigorous, you know, rigorously, or it doesn't fall, fall under academically rigorous standards, but I think that if you ultimately, once you leave debate, can use that, then that's important. I think that Branson wrote an article about this on, like, eDebate a couple years ago, too, where it was, like, you know, the quality of the research that we do. Like, I once tried to, like, jokingly insert the Spicer card into a paper, and the professor was just like, you know, seems like a lot of hogwash or something to me, like, you know, using the Spicer card to impact, like, a free trade paper. But, you know, we just need to be able to balance out that from what it is. And going back to, are we going to go back to where we're actually at? Before? Well, the thing is that, like... Oh, so, so no, we're not going to go back to where... <laughs> that, the thing about that Branson thing, that it was just, it was so funny, because Branson just kind of assumed that he would walk into a room with people who did arms control as their job for like 40 years, and he would be the smartest guy in the room, which is like, define Josh Branson. But it's like, I don't think most people in debate think that way. You can't well, compare, you can't compare someone who debates the, or the like last year's new topic for one year to like Sorincioni, who has like a PhD in like arms control. I don't know that's not a thing you get a PhD in, but he has like the equivalent of that and has like done it for like you 40 years. You know, 40 hours a week, every week. It's like, obviously that's not a fair comparison. You have to compare, like, I wasn't very good in science and statistics, but I'm pretty sure no, you weren't. you're trying to eliminate variables by comparing groups that are as similar as possible. And so comparing people who do debate in college to professionals in the field not really a good scientific sampling. You definitely didn't learn that on the final you slept there. <laughs> well, normally you don't learn things on the final. 
Oh, it's a deep burn. Oh, it's so deep. All right. Well, I, all right. Point being, I don't really think that that's like a fair comparison. But like in terms of the judge reading the evidence thing, back to the I guess point. yeah. I think that's how we got off on that. I guess like I don't really see how it improves the quality of the debate. I see how it maybe improves the time it takes to make a decision. Maybe you gotta get a jump to ahead of time. Can't possibly be good. Well, I mean, obviously, if the team is bad at jumpy things, this is just going to be like another slowdown because they have to jump into. There is an epidemic of inability to use flash drives in debate. I think there should be some kind of paperless licensing regime where you have to like take a class and then like go on a couple of debates with an instructor and then much like the much like the double loss. Are you going to be in charge of this? Are you going to regulate this? I think that I think people I get people who are bad at paperless bad points first of all because. Just like if someone couldn't find their 2AC blocks and was, like, stealing a bunch of crap, if it takes you more than, like, 30 seconds to jump something, you're getting docked points because you're... Do you think that is let, me, let me give everyone out there a little piece of advice. Uh, you have the opportunity to purchase a broad variety of flash drives. Purchase the ones that don't require drivers and that aren't embedded with software. That is the stupidest thing that you all do, is you get these, like, Toshiba... Uh, uh, Scan uh, disk things. And you have to like you put it in, and then it pops up its own program, and like Windows thinks that it has to restart to install the software. Why are you using those flash drives? You can buy the cheapest flash drive that exists, and it's just a blank disk. You insert it into a computer, and it shows up almost instantly. You save something to it, you pull it out, and it's fine. The uh, those flash drives are actually cheaper than the fancy ones that require all of this embedded software. So just stop bringing those to tournaments. It's absurd how many times. Uh, someone will be handed a flash drive, and the person plugs it in and is like, oh, i got to restart my computer. Uh, I gotta, like, this program doesn't work on my computer. It's a flash drive. It's supposed to be interoperable. And the most important thing for selecting a flash drive for debate is, is it interoperable? Is it easy? Does it just automatically work? Spend the $10 to get a new flash drive if your flash drive is horrible, and stop wasting everyone's time. It's just a totally easily fixed problem. Uh, also, every instead of getting, like, one 64-gigabyte flash drive... <laughs> You should get like five to ten one gigabyte ones. Or they're going to lose them. I mean, they're going to lose them. You can get 128 megabyte flash drives for free. I have like 20 in the computer lab at the moment that people just lose constantly. Uh, you could probably buy a 20 pack of those for like five dollars. Just you're saving Word documents. You're not saving movies. You don't need giant uh, flash drives that the computer then takes forever to try and index the contents of. Uh, keep your flash drive clean. Get a good one that works yeah, for the baby. stuff that's on that. I hate when it's like there's like a song on it, and then they're like, no, oh, no, you want to auto-play this? Auto play this? It's process. like, God, just this is not this difficult. I also, this is related to that, but they're always just like, it's never the, it's, n- neither, both sides are never to blame for when something doesn't jump, right? It's like the insta-blame the other, it's like, the speech is not, I can't find the speech, uh, the speech wouldn't jump, or your jump drive's broken, it's incompatible with my computer. It's incompatible with my computer, something's wrong with your jump, I mean, it is, if you're going paperless, you have to have a couple jump drives for each team. And you make case. sure it works. Plug it into a Mac, plug it into a couple different versions of Windows, make sure that it works. It shouldn't give me wrong this, this later. This does, this does really give me wrong. One uh, other thing that I, I uh, think is more. that, like, I noticed one benefit of the viewing computer instead of, like, putting it on the other team's computer. Is I saw, I think it was Gulliver at, uh, at the Meadows tournament. They would have it up on the viewing computer before the previous speech ended. So it was like, there was literally negative time. They were so good at it. I was like that. I gave them bonus points for that because 
It was like such, it was so refreshing. Not only was there not like five minutes, there was no time. There are automatically on the viewing computer, good to go. I think Liberty, also in college, they like do like some kind of Dropbox thing. So it's always like by the time they're ready to give the speech, it's already on the viewing computer. So I just don't understand how some people can do it like that, and then other people practice. Yeah, just practice it. I saw. I, I don't. I don't know if I've mentioned this. I don't think I've mentioned this on the podcast. But it, I don't even know. think it's practice. It's not like there's muscle. It's not hard. It's it's just, you just do it once, know how it works, and then just do well, it. That is. Time. You gotta. They don't know how it goes. But a team, uh, the team from Blake, uh, had it set up so that it Bluetooth to oh, their viewing computer, and it, it just they would just be like, "All right, I'm ready. Stop prep." They press a button, and it would show up on the viewing computer. And I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is manna from heaven." The, this just works. And the other team can't be like, oh, I don't know how to get your file. I don't know how to use computers, even though we have four of them in this debate. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is that I would understand if you were not a paperless team and you're like, oh, this paperless. Like, if it was like me, I'd be like, what the hell is going on here? I don't know. Even I would be able to figure this out. But if you were, both teams are paperless, how can you not figure out what is going on? It's like you do this all of the time in all of your debates. Figure Troubleshoot. I mean... Jesus Christ, get it together. And judges shouldn't read evidence before the game. <laughs> I also, like... No, no, no. <laughs> when two teams are paperless, I hate that every person has to have it. On oh, oh, my God. So like there are, there are often, like, paper. random computers that just get taken out of the, the, the back file computer area that have to have the, the document on there. I'm so glad Southwest is moving to Atlanta. We're going back to tubs. We can check in as many tubs as we want. I don't care. We're going to fly with three tubs. Each team's going to have as many tubs. What do you care? You don't even show up at the tournament. Well, whatever. It's aggravating me just having to talk about this. We're going to well, the, the, the lesson for this, though, is when you do it right, it is refreshing and it's very nice because it just happens and the debate happens quickly and it's wonderful. So if you do it right, your judges will be very happy because they'll be shocked that some of you are able to figure this out and it will just highlight how absurd it is when your opponents are like, stop prep, and then 22 minutes later... They stand up ready to deliver their speech. Uh, so practice it, get good at it, you know, get the right equipment, you know, see if it works before you show up at the tournament, and then everyone will be happy. And don't read evidence of judges and don't, during the debate. Don't read evidence during the debate, pending further discussion. All right, I think that wraps it up. Uh, so for the three and R, this has been Scott Phillips along with... Bill Batterman and... Roy Lefkowitz. Smell you later. I